0: Welcome back to the Experience Growth Podcast. I am your host, Chris Suarez, and thank you for being my guest. And now every week at Experience Growth, we look to have conversations with CEOs, with entrepreneurs, with high performers, with thought leaders, but also just phenomenal moms, dads, brothers, sisters, people just like you and I. Uh, our, Our community believes that life should be experiential. And we look to have conversations with those that make life's decisions around that mission as well. Today, we're going to introduce you to Jarrett Lambeau. Now, he is the head of programming for Blind Nil, which is the production company for the Magnolia Network. Perhaps that name you know more. When we hear Magnolia, we can think of none other than Chip and Joanna Gaines. They have built one of the most massively experiential brands. And today, we get to have a conversation with one of the people responsible for helping deliver the experience to you and I, those watching and and buying their products, but also the individual that helps create the experience on screen as well. Outside of just his role, we're going to talk about how he views the power of building relationships over time. Jarrett shares a valuable lesson around relationships that he had built in a moment of time when perhaps he felt like he was running in place or worse, even failing, showed up years later to be a massive benefit to his career and his experiential life. We'll have a conversation about taking risks, especially when those risks are aligned with the way that we would choose to live. And a valuable conversation of how amazing just amazing things can be created when all parties are aligned around a mission in his world when chip and joanna the creators are aligned with the producers who are aligned with the network and what comes out of that alignment and lastly we'll have a conversation of what it looks like to have a big career to be a career driven husband and wife and mom and dad while also being ridiculously committed to being great parents? What sacrifices need to be made, if any? So with that, let's jump into our conversation with Jarrett Lambeau. All right, we have Jarrett Lambeau with us today. And Jared, first, thank you for for taking some time out of your uh, crazy and and hectic schedule as you are used to. And and we're going to learn about that a little bit uh, later today. Jared, you serve currently as the head of programming for Blind Mill, the production studio for the Magnolia Network. Now, I might actually ask you about that name uh, a little bit later, um, and maybe you'll share that. But when the majority of our audience hears Magnolia Network, we we know exactly what that is. That network has created an incredible and iconic brand within the real estate community. The reason why I was attracted and and wanted to have this conversation with you because I think they've probably done um, better than anyone in creating a, a brand that is steeped and rooted in experience, how we experience space, how we live, how we create an experience. So maybe just share with us to begin what it is that you do, and, and maybe tell us a little bit about the even the name of the production studio, because I think it, it it gives a little insight into the personality and and the world that is the people that you work with every day.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. So what I do is I run Chip and Joanna's production company, which supplies content for their new Magnolia Network, and the name Blind Nail, and. I should say this. I had the name wrong for a long time. I must've been working there for six months and I thought it was blind nail. And I thought maybe that was some sort of construction term that they had chosen, almost like a tongue and groove thing, only to find out that it's in fact, it's a term used in the game of spades, which they both love. And it's like the move you would make if you're a a baller, like you just, you're going all in without knowing what that card is going to be on the other side. So it's a real, it's a gambling move to make. And I think that probably best represents the Chip side of the brand. He's a real risk taker and he loves that and he revels in risk. And so I assume, and I've never asked why they settled on that name, but knowing Chip a little bit now, my guess is it was something that he really wanted to go for.
0: Awesome. I think, uh, I think many of us can relate to a time in our life when we were there. So uh, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And so, what it is, what is it that uh, that you then do for for the production uh, company?
1: Sure. So what we do is we either develop ideas internally, or ideas come from the network or Chip and Joe, and we flesh them out as concepts, and then we actually physically go out and produce them and make these TV shows that you see. Whether it's Fixer Upper, Welcome Home, which is our the new iteration of fixer upper we also have magnolia table which is joanna's new cooking show we have a number of other series that are not chip and joe related and then we also work on some of their target shoots the commercials and everything all things related to chip and joe we do and then outside of that that the network asks us to work on we develop and produce those shows as well
0: okay so it sounds like you're pretty busy It also is interesting how you got there. So maybe let's go back. Did you wake up one day and say, Hey, I really want to work with Chip and Joe was, was your target, the, the real estate space, how did you end up um, working with them? So, no, I mean, it's
1: really interesting. My wife and I, I had been living in New York city for about seven years and we knew we were having uh, our first daughter and my wife was from Austin We had gotten married here. We had been visiting here and we, I loved it. I mean, I just like, I was ready to leave New York. I don't know why. I know a lot of people feel that way. I love New York. It's actually where I was born. So I feel this connection to it. But I was just, I just found myself at that place where it was starting to wear on me when I'd get in the subway and there'd be like a thousand people in there and it was hot or it was cold and it was always something. And I was just ready for something new. And we really did kind of take a risk. And my wife had a big job at the Financial Times and she was leaving that. And we didn't exactly know where we were going to land. I knew I had a job down here where I could work in freelance and it was not this job. And I took that job and I worked there for about two years. And I got a call out of the blue from a friend who was an agent. And she said, hey, this thing's heating up in Texas where Chip and Joe are going to start their own network. Would you be interested in that? And I was like, of course, yeah, I would love to hear more about it. I love that programming. I've never really worked in this kind of programming, to be perfectly honest. And maybe that's the most interesting part of my world in general and making television is you get to work on, you're a freelancer, right? So you get to work on projects that you go from one project to the next, to the next, to the next. and you can go from something that really interests you a lot to maybe something that doesn't. And especially in those early days, and maybe we can go back to that, you just sort of have to work on whatever comes your way. It's that kind of a world, especially back then in the early 2000s, there was not the television ecosystem that exists today where you have quite literally thousands and thousands of hours of content to choose from. It was much smaller then. So you felt lucky to have a job back then. Whereas today there's enough work to go around and we're all lucky to have it. So I had never worked in the lifestyle space, really. So it was new for me, but it was exciting. I had a daughter. I want to be able to share shows with her that I'm proud to work on. And I think this space, lifestyle, is one of those things that everyone loves, whether they put it on in the background or they're really engaged with it. It's something that you can share with your grandparents, your parents, your kids, your peers, everyone. And that's what I think is so appealing about it to a large audience.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We didn't have the conversation before we we jumped in, but I was born and raised in New York as well, and and made a, a lifestyle or experiential choice to leave New York. Right, self profound Like I'm a New Yorker through and through. Love New York, but really wanted to. As I looked at my future and knew that kids were going to be in the future, it wasn't a place that I wanted to really build those new roots for my family. I ended up in Portland. You ended up in Austin. But bring us back while you were in New York, what projects were you working on before your current projects?
1: It's funny you mentioned these changes. I also was in LA for nine years first. That was where my career started. I was there for nine years and I was, that's like, that was the epicenter of TV at the time. New York was not yet there. So I went out to LA where I was told you had to go. And I got very lucky. A family member helped me get a job with Jeb Zucker. It was my first job. And I remember going up to NBC. I was 21 with my mom. My mom drove me from San Diego. She was living at the time. And I pulled onto the lot and I, I walked in. And I'm like, I'm here to meet the president of this network. And it was cool. As somebody who grew up loving TV and loving movies and being for the first time, in those halls of NBC and seeing like Seinfeld posters and Friends and Cheers and Frasier, it made me feel like, oh, this is a real thing. And I never felt that way. I never knew how I was going to get there. And he gave me my first opportunity, which was basically to be a production assistant, which in you get coffee for people. I don't know a nicer way to say it back then. That was the job, you fetch coffee for people. And I did that actually for a number of years. And I was able to work up the ranks early on. And then my career, it really went up and down for a while because that freelance game, it was like, if you got on a show and was successful, then you could get promoted. A lot of my friends got promoted very quickly that I started with. I was unlucky, or at least I thought I was unlucky at the time. I was working on a lot of shows or a lot of pilots that started and failed. What I didn't realize at the time but became very clear about three or four years later is i was creating this enormous network that i didn't recognize in that moment mm-hmm. by working with all these different people on all these failed shows it actually gave me an enormous network and connections that my friends never had they were working on one show it was super successful and they were definitely getting promoted but when that show ended they didn't really know anybody because they were only in that on that one show. Whereas I had worked on probably six or seven failed shows or more, maybe it was like 10. And as a result, I, I had this enormous network of people to work with. And once I was able to find success on a show, and I think the first show was probably America's Got Talent where I was like, okay, this is going to last for a while. I, then, when I wanted to leave, I could go out and talk to a lot of people and find work. Whereas I know a lot of my friends struggled with that in those days. So it was one of those weird things where you don't realize that in the moment that this failure is actually benefiting you, but it it benefited me enormously. And so I was in LA for 10 years. I really had no reason to leave. I had this itch. And I think maybe it was that calling of going to New York as a kid and seeing fam- family. And it was where I was born. And in 2010, I moved there. Again, not with too much of a plan. Oprah was leaving her job as the talk show host. And there was this show where we were going to follow the behind the scenes of the last year on air. So there was a team filming in Chicago, and then they were going to be editing in New York City. And I was part of that team that was going to be producing the, the editing side in New York City. And it was a year commitment. And it was very scary for me. I had all my friends. I was living in Venice Beach. I was right there. It was two blocks from the ocean. I was right off Abbott Kinney. I had a good job. I had good friends all there. And I just went and And I did it and I didn't really know what to expect. And I was quite scared to be honest. I remember being petrified on that flight there and making the biggest mistake of my life and far from it. I mean, it's given me great confidence since then and knowing that it worked out that you can take these big chances in life and it usually will work out. I know they are scary. They're still scary for me, but they're less scary now. I remember that moment in 2010 was a really, really scary moment. And then again, I got, I don't know if it's luck or whatever, I end up in New York. And then the the TV world or the cable TV world at the time, it shifted and it was like, suddenly there was tons of production in New York City. And I found myself in a situation where I had a lot of experience coming from LA and there was a lot of work there and it allowed me to move up the ladder to a show running position which I never would have had that opportunity in LA or I, I probably wouldn't have had that opportunity at that point in my career I was 31 and so that that was a big game changer for me and it threw me right into the position of running a show for the first time mm.
0: what show was that can you share that
1: yeah that was a show called Moonshiners that was on Discovery Channel that's now been running for over 10 years at this point and is a wildly successful show and I Looking back on it, I, I really didn't know exactly what I was doing. Like I I knew how to make a TV show, but I did not know how to organize a staff and hire and, and everything that goes into that. I think a showrunner, if you, the best way to think about it is you're like a mini CEO of a company and you're handed a budget of, I don't know, let's say $3 million for that series. And you have to manage that completely for that production company you have to make sure that your budgets are on time, you got to hire staff, editors, producers, camera operators, everything soup to nuts, and that's your responsibility. So that was the first time I was really thrust into that sort of a position. I did that with a guy named Chris Tettens, who definitely had more experience than me. And it was nice to at least have somebody to fall back on. But it was new for both of us, I think, to be honest, he was more experienced than I was. But we were both put in a position for the first time where we were in charge.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of lessons that that I've already taken away as massive. Number one, sometimes we feel like we're running in place or we're not moving forward. Or, or as you said, gosh, these actually in your industry, it's actually more conclusive. Like, hey, this failed. Hey, this didn't get picked up. Like this pilot didn't win. Right there, there's a definite failure. And yet through those failures, those relationships actually exponentially probably sped you up in your career, as opposed to, like you said, some of your friends and, and people that you were alongside of that were winning in the moment, but actually had slower career paths later. And those relationships led you down that path. The second one is, I think as we end one chapter and are willing to open up the next chapter, and that could be a different industry, it could be a different job, it could be a different city, it could be a different right relationship relationship but when we're willing to open up the next chapter it it builds confidence and as you mentioned gosh I've never done this before here's the budget run everything the confidence of being able to pick up and move and and being able to start something new I think is a a valuable ingredient um, for success yeah I agree
1: and I'll admit I am I was not somebody who had confidence I was not the best student I'm dyslexic so I was in these learning disability classes through middle elementary and even high school so I lacked confidence and and even when I started in this industry watching my friends succeed only reinforced what I thought was this sense that I can't get there like I'm not going to get there another part of this I guess my story would be dyslexia turns out to be a huge advantage in what I do because it's it nonfiction editing is it's all out of order right like it's called nonlinear. so you look at pieces out of order on a screen for somebody like me that's dyslexic it's really easy to see how these pieces can move around and go back into order so the first time I remember I sat in a edit bay I was with a very experienced editor and this was on America's Got Talent And I was very junior and I had these thoughts. I'll never forget this. I had these distinct thoughts. I wrote them down, but I was too scared to say it. And the executive producer came into the room. His name was Jason and was a mentor to me and he still is the executive producer of that show. And he gave these notes, like almost verbatim, the thoughts that I had in my head were what Jason was saying to do to the editor that we needed to do to this cut. And so I started to realize, okay, maybe maybe I do, there's something that was clicking there when I was feeling it, but I still didn't have the confidence to say it. And I would sometimes push back on these older, more experienced editors only to be shot down. But eventually after a while, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go with my gut, I think I'm right. And I I would say these things and it would turn out maybe to be right or sometimes it may to be wrong, but the editors started to respect me and listen to me and that gave me confidence (laughs) in what I was doing. And then i the great thing about this industry or the worst thing about it is these jobs last like three months, six months, eight months. So if it's not working out, you move on to something else. And I chose Leave America's Got Talent. I really liked it, but it was, again, it was three years. It was grueling, it was time to move on. And then that brought me to a show called Jersey Shore which became wildly (laughs) popular and, and famous And that show really gave me confidence and okay, this story, I know how to do this because this was completely out of order. And I was able to work with the editors and that team and put it together. And after that, that was a show that was like very transformative because it became such a big hit that it allowed me to kind of not do whatever I wanted, but I was definitely in demand. Mm -hmm. like somebody who worked and it wasn't just me. It was like anyone who worked on that show was suddenly like, oh, I want to work with them. And that was like a game changer. And so my confidence grew and grew and grew. And by the time I got to New York, I felt pretty good about knowing how to tell stories.
0: That's awesome. So fast forward, where were you, what were you working on when this decision to um, leave New York, right? At that point, the the epicenter of your career and and success, what was going through your head at that moment?
1: So I was working with this company, Lucky 8, which did a show called 60 Days In, which was a very popular show on a and we did a bunch of shows actually we were doing about 10 different series at the time it was again like I was happy there it wasn't like a matter of not being happy but it was just like that itch of I wanted to scratch to try something new and it wasn't just career I think that that itch was more of a lifestyle for the mm-hmm. first time I think the other ones were career itches, or I was single, and I wanted to go to New York and see what that was like, this was very much like, I am seeking a different life. So I felt I was really actually okay with the decision. I think because I went through the New York experience. I think my wife, rightfully so was much more scared. And that was harder because I wanted her to be happy with this decision, even though we were moving home, her home, she was much more nervous about it than I was. And I think that's the best thing about freelancing is to your point earlier, it gives you the confidence, like to try new things. If you fail, it's okay. You get back up and you try something new. Whereas people that work in traditional careers, they can often be with one company for five, 10 years. So that change is so much more difficult than it was for somebody like me who had already probably worked at 26 different companies by the time I, I left New York. So Change became comfortable for me, but it was not for her. And I think that was really hard. And it was like, are we making the right? I felt like we were making the right decision, but I was definitely worried that she didn't think that we were making the right decision.
0: And now you're in Austin, and your wife was at the Financial Times, right? She had a job with Financial Times in New York, in Austin. She works at a firm called
1: Dimensional Fund Advisors, where she oversees communications for them globally. That was a similar job she had at the FT as well.
0: Yeah. A massive role and a massive job. Uh, and, and you have a big role. How do you balance that? We talk a lot within our community around how to live experientially and, and many people feel like, well, gosh, you're either going to choose um, enjoying your life and enjoying time with people you love and your family, or you're going to be a, a, a career person. And yet both of you have have really big, massive careers. How does that work in, in, in real life? We
1: also have two babies, which makes it hard. It, it's just, it's tough. We have a three-year-old and an 18-month-old. So we're very much in it right
0: now. Um, I'm well ahead of you, with but yeah, like... 18 months, three years, like that is, when you say in it, you're in it. Yeah. So you
1: just get used to less sleep, right? And that becomes part of at least this time in our life. This season in our life is very much one without less sleep. But I think we're both homebodies. I think we both really value family. We're both a little introverted. And so we prioritize the time with our kids and our family and I think that's how we're able to balance it. We don't do a lot of extracurricular activities, which I think we both would like to, but I think that time will come. And right now is maybe not it. Maybe when the girls get a little bit older, we can have that opportunity to have more me time. But we really like being with them and with each other. So that's just where we put our time. But if we're being honest, it's hard. It's a tough one. I'd like to know what you think about that too. It's a tough one and we've, we struggle with it. I think yeah. probably like everyone does and try to find the balance. And sometimes it's easier than other times, but I think we're doing our best. And I, I guess that's the answer, right? Is you just have to be committed to trying to to find the time to yeah. to spend with each other and your family.
0: I think that's fair. I think I like that answer because it's important for everyone to realize that it's just real. At the end of the day, it isn't easy. It never gets easier. But I think I think a takeaway is that you said, "Gosh, we kind of wish there may be more time for the extra." curricular, the, the going out, the friend groups, the all the other things outside of work and family. And yet what I hear, and I, I think I, I subscribe to this as well. Like the people that know me know that I'm much more reserved than people would think. And that has served me well, but that's also a choice. It's a choice because I have my business world that I care greatly about, and it brings incredible personal development and, and satisfaction. And, and I have my family who I care incredibly about. And, and those are My pillars and those are my rocks, and I choose to spend time there and focus. There's a trade off and a sacrifice, right? Some would say, Well, that doesn't sound so fun. And and I trade and sacrifice that what other people would say is this is fun and that is fun. What about this and what about that? Which it sounds like you both are clear that the girls are important to us, career is important to us. Let's focus on those two during this period or phase of our life. We're going to have lots of phases. And I think that's a, a valuable lesson.
1: Yeah, and I relate to something you just said there. It's I think we're intentional about our time and our friends. Like I have always been I, as long as I can remember a person who has smaller friend groups but tries to dedicate as much time as I can to those smaller groups. I'm also the same type of person who would much rather go to dinner with two maybe three people. I'm not the the person who wants to go to dinner with 10 people because I don't feel like then I'm giving my best time to those people. And so I always steer to what you were saying. I just choose these very particular lanes in my life. And I guess I try to stay in them the best I can.
0: Yeah. I think for, for me, relationships should be experiential. And so if, if I'm going to be in one, whether it's my, my wife, my children, or friends, that time is curated, it's designed, it's selected, right? It's experiential. And 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 sometimes that seems boring to others that love big parties and lots of people and events every weekend and Wednesday and Thursday, happy hours. And that isn't my life, but it's a curated experience of relationship as well.
1: Oh yeah. I think I'm probably like one of the the most boring people in the world, but it's just, I know my friends think that about me and it's fine though. I've accepted it and I'm very comfortable with my, my, with who I am as a boring person. (laughs)
0: Mastery and success is always important. That has served you well. Let, let's talk a little bit about now you're you're working uh, directly with the Magnolia Network, which I actually have to say, I think they have created one of the most experiential brands. How does experience factor into what you take a step back and, and are looking to deliver with the network? So for me,
1: it's been a learning process. Like I said, I I didn't, know them very well. I watched Fixer Upper like I think most of the world did. And I hadn't worked in lifestyle shows at all, especially cooking shows. I, this, The show that we're doing, Magnolia Tables, the first cooking show I've really ever worked on. I think when I joined this organization, it was more, How I wanted to just listen and learn. Like I just sat there and I saw that the way they did things were very, very intentional on a lot of fronts, whether it was from even like documents that were shared with the group were done in a way that I had never seen before. They were designed beautifully. They were designed simply. And so for our team, rather than trying to come in and say, oh, we're the TV people we know better. I think what we tried to do was integrate into their world and adopt what they were doing. And by doing so, I think it ingratiated us to them. And I was able to learn by being closer to it. And as far as what they do, I just think they're very authentic to the core. It's probably not as complicated as you think. They're family people and they really are that. And they really do care about those things. And I think that's what you see and feel in the people that come and visit Waco. They really do see and feel that authenticity that is who Chip and Joe and to a larger extension, the brand is. What we're really intentionally trying to do is create an authentic experience for the viewers and how we make a TV show. So if anything feels like BS, I guess, is the short of it, we're like, "Eh, let's lose it.
0: How does that, how does that contrast perhaps other projects you've worked on or does it? It's a good question. What's really
1: nice, and it's not just Chip and Joe, it's also the network itself, is I think we're all very aligned with what we're trying to do. Whereas Other projects, the network may have a vision for it. The production company might have a vision for it. And the showrunner has a vision for it. And it's often at odds with each other. And I don't really feel that way with what we do. Of course, it's very subjective. Television is, any form like this is. But I feel like we're lucky in that the three sort of pillars of this Network, the network, us, the production company, and then the owners of the company, Chip and Joe, we're often usually aligned with what we're going for. And so that makes it a lot easier to to your point. Often, in my experience, that can be hard. The network, let's just take Bravo for an example. And I'm not saying that's the right one to take. They have a very clear brand identity. And if you're a production company and you want to try to do something different from that, which... You often do right like you want to put your own stamp on it that probably won't work well, whereas what we're doing since we're all talking and communicating in a way that isn't standard or traditional I think it helps make this process work much more efficiently and, and as a result, much better.
0: yeah. I think, I think it, it's not always easy to get uh, three those three pillars think differently, right? They were brought up in different worlds oftentimes. So to get that alignment on, on mission is, is probably key to what's led to just the massive success, but also just the massive following that, that they have built.
1: Yeah, yeah. And look, we all look to them too for guidance, right? Like I, I think the Magnolia Journal was the first thing that we looked at and we're like okay this really does speak to the brand and we studied it a lot from just like a tv perspective it's like okay there's a lot in here for us to learn from if i ever have a question though i can ask it and i can get the straight answer and it may not be what i want to hear always but at least then i know okay that's a guardrail we don't touch and so Over the last two years, I've learned, okay, that's, we can go this far with this sort of joke, or we can't push this idea that far. And the nice thing is you just ask and you're told, and that helps a lot.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this. As you think about the future, one of the the things that I I, I like there the, the mission statement or a part of the mission statement, at least, of the network has is, is been being a risk taker, being a course challenger, being a pathmaker, creator, dreamer, storyteller. What does that mean for the future and the network, do you think?
1: Just to simplify all those terms, the way that we've always talked about it internally is that everyone has a story worth telling. I'm going to caveat that a little bit, which is to say that everyone has a story we're telling, but it still needs to be told well and entertaining, right? Like, I think you can take a concept like that and it could be very earnest if not done exactly the right way. And that's the challenge, not only of what we do here, but of what every television producer has to do is, is take an idea or a thesis statement that all networks have, right? Every network has their own sort of thesis statement of what they want to do translate that in an entertaining and very clear way that people want to keep following it. So I think we're doing that. And I think we'll continue to learn. I don't think I'm speaking in a turn and saying that there's the thing about television is there's definitely lots of failures and you learn from those and hopefully you get better. So I'm not sure if that answers your yes, question, yes, it but does. yeah, I um, think we will continue to learn and grow and we probably will change direction a little bit, right? Like I have no doubt the course that we started on two years ago is already a little bit different than it is today. And I'm sure it'll be a little bit different two years from now, four years now, six years from now. And especially not knowing what the media landscape will look like and how we fit into it. That could also dictate it. That's an outside force that we won't have, as much control over.
0: and you already seen that, right? You guys are working on a, a new project that launches in July. What is what does that look like? That's been somewhat a, a shift in, in how people engage with TV or media or, or brand.
1: Yeah, I we often talk about how the con, the consumer, right, the end user here, and what is the best experience for them. And I can just tell you, trying to explain this stuff to my mom, who I realize is older is hard. She's like, wait, where is that? What is that? And even I find myself like, was that show on HBO Max? Is that show on Netflix? Is that show on... So in the end, I assume what you'll see is consolidation across most in media to compete with Netflix and Disney. And you just saw it this week with HBO. And I think you'll continue to see it. And there might be less competition, but I think the end result will be a better experience for consumers where they can hopefully find things and the shows that they want to watch without having to like fish through 12 different subscription platforms, if not more.
0: Yeah, I think that's insightful. I think there's a a great business lesson for us there as well, regardless of what business we're in. I think there's this movement to step out um, of of our business office and think about who we're serving and who our who our consumer is, who our listener is, who our audience is, who our purchaser is and and make sure they're getting what they want. If if they don't now in the world that we live in, they will find it somewhere, or someone will create it around us, and then all of a sudden, the market has moved. We've seen that even with Chip and Joanna, they've started things, they've stepped away from it, they've come back to it. When you think about even the, the storefront, that was a transition of the market moved, and then the market opened again as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's TV. Really, do need to think about, especially, and I guess to your point, every business, it's like what is the end user result and what is that experience for the viewer. And that's something that I do think a lot about. And we think a lot about it here, is this clear? That's like the big thing for me, always this, could anybody understand what we're trying to do here? And we spend a lot of time thinking about that. But then the other side of that is, is it fun to watch? And that's the other, that's, those are the two big things, right? Is it clear and easy to understand? Is it fun to watch? And most people watch TV They get home and whatever, they put their kid to bed and they have an hour and they just want to sit back and be entertained and not have to think too hard. And that's what we spend most of our time thinking about is how do we deliver a product that people can sit back and watch and not, and enjoy and just have fun watching.
0: Yeah, I love that. Well, Jared, I appreciate your time. I think, I think uh, although we started a conversation around programming and and TV and, and entertainment, there were some valuable lessons on Uh, choices in life, even although that you ended where you are today by a choice around how do we create an experiential life for for me, my wife, my, my future children. But interestingly enough, as you go back, you use the word luck a couple of times, although I think you've been incredibly intentional around building relationships over the course of your career that have, that have been the building blocks of future success and future business. I, I, I think being willing to take some risks is a critical component of where you are today. And I also really appreciate the lesson greatly around choosing where we spend our time and who we spend our time with, which allows us to do not just one thing well, but be able to build a big business, to have careers and, and to be able to feel good and intentional around how we raise our families as well. So appreciate those lessons. Anything we should be watching out for or looking for from the network in in the near future? We will be
1: launching another round or another batch of Fix Your Upper Welcome homes starting July 15th, I believe. And also Magnolia Table, which is Joanna's cooking show, which we'd love to make. And it's just a lot of fun for everyone. Those episodes are airing now every Friday night. Those drop on Discovery+. Plus.
0: Awesome! Awesome! Yep. I appreciate your time. And I appreciate you sharing uh, your journey with us, and uh, I'm gonna let you get back to to work and the girls and everything else. But if we can ever do anything to help, you let us know.